Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm your host, Lane Nordland. Happy to be with you here today. This show is coming to you all the way from the 2022 Cattle Industry Convention and NCBA Trade Show in sunny Houston, Texas. I can say it's sunny. Because it's not raining, nor is there a fog in the air. I'll need to step out. (laughs) Sunny and warm. Sunny and warm. (laughs) Well, uh, we are happy to be here broadcasting from the Micro Technologies booth here in the Cattlemen's Connection booth. And uh, we'd just like to thank, first off, our sponsors of the Environmental Stewardship Award. That's what we're talking about here today. We'd like to give a big shout-out to Corteva. NRCS, USDA, McDonald's, and U.S. Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And uh, this is going to be part two of our conversations with ESAP Regional Winners. And joining us uh, here today from San Angelo, Texas, the Dry Creek Ranches, Carl and Pat Schlinky. Schlinky. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, I, you That's told me okay. that earlier. Schlinky. We got, we got Carl and Pat here with us. And we also have uh, John Ferry with JY Ferry and Son Incorporated out of Corinne, Utah. John, thanks for joining us here today. Good to be here. And uh, congratulations, first off, on your hard work, the generations, the years that have gone into uh, creating a successful livestock operation, but also highlighting the important role that cattle men and women play in taking care of our land and our livestock. And the Environmental Stewardship Award is a great way to really highlight uh, all the people in the industry and uh, it, it's too bad we can only really have seven regional people because I know we could, <laughs> we, we could double that more. And, and there's a lot of people that are maybe too shy to even nominate themselves or, or think that they're worthy but we all know they're that they are and uh, let's just uh, we'll go around the table here John I'll start with you first let's talk about your family operation there in Utah and uh how many generations, uh, what, what are some of the practices, and uh, how, how many folks you got on the operation right now? I'm a fourth-generation uh, farmer and rancher. My great-grandfather came from Chicago, followed the Transcontinental Railroad, ended up in Corinne, Utah. That's the last place before the, the two rails met there at Promontory Point, and we've been there since uh, the turn of the century. So about 120 years, we have farmed, we have ranched, and we've been part of the Bear River Valley community. And it's been a privilege as far as our operation. Uh, we farm, we feed, uh, we also have a ranching operation and also a, a wildlife enterprise. There's, I am, like I said, fourth generation. I farm currently with my brother and son Joel, brother Ben. And uh, we operate on the place, uh, about 1,200 mother cows, about not quite 6,000 head in the grow yard, uh, feed yard and about 3,500 acres of farm ground, of which we grow corn, alfalfa, wheat, uh, irrigated pastures, uh, peppermint. Really? And uh, we are somewhat of a poor, we're right at the bottom of a, of a giant lake bed, flat as a pancake, very uninspiring, very unromantic as far as ranches are concerned. We are not the Ponderosa, <laughs> it's, all, it's all wetlands. But it's a, it's a niche that we have there for 120 years, figured out how to uh, grow and prosper. Great. 
Well, thanks for that overview, and we'll continue to expand on it here throughout our conversation. And uh, as we uh, go to San Angelo, Texas now, to, to Carl and Pat. Carl, I'll start with you. Let's talk about uh, your operation. And uh, uh, did you grow up on this operation? I did. Uh, my grandfather uh, homesteaded this in uh, 1902. And... Uh, he had five daughters, my mother being one of them, and uh, divided the ranch into five different uh, operations. And then my father took it over and uh, leased from the other uh, aunts of mine. And uh, he operated it until the mid-80s. We inherited uh, half of, I had a, a, a sister. Uh, we inherited, Pat and I inherited half of that, meaning, uh, uh, six sections, uh, one of which was in Dad's operation, and and uh, the other five was deeded to us. Uh, we uh, and and I would mention that uh, we sold our registered herd of cattle, uh, Herefords, uh, in 2018 to our neighbor across the street. It was a uh, the best op opportunity for us to uh, begin to retire we just did it all at once mm -hmm. and uh, I have told several people since even though we're up in age uh, I don't recommend retirement uh, if we had that opportunity I guess it's the best of the two but moving to town is not a an option for yeah. us yeah uh, and Pat, for, for you guys have been married 25 years, is that right? No. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> no, we've been married 70 years as of last week. So uh, we've, we've had uh, a, a long time together to learn to, about each other. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And for yourself, did you grow up in, in an agriculture community as well? Yes, I grew up on a farm in uh, central Texas, in Williamson County, and my dad had row crops and Hereford cattle. So uh, that's what I knew. And when, we, when Carl retired from the military, from his first occupation, <laughs> uh, that's both of us were just familiar with uh, Herefords, and we decided that at our ages we should stick with that mm -hmm. because of their uh, uh, docility and and ease ease of handling. So uh, that's what we did. So as we, we look at your operation down there and uh, when you started taking over those sections, what were some of those key priorities that really stuck out to you of, uh, you know, ways in, of management that worked really well and maybe uh, some methods that you'd heard about and explored elsewhere to, to really make each acre more profitable, more profitable, but also uh, being concerned about uh, not overusing it and making sure that that natural resource was uh, taken care of properly. One of the uh, things we were confronted with uh, and have been, uh, as, if you know that part of Texas, is mesquite. Mm -hmm. And uh, a classmate of mine who was a state senator got a bill passed several years before he was get it, able to get it uh, instrumented, uh, and that is uh, clearing mesquite for the benefit of putting more water into the reservoirs for the communities, uh, uh, in addition to San Angelo, that's furnished the water. So uh, we didn't have that opportunity uh, 
upon retiring in, in uh, uh, 1985, but uh, five years after that and uh, connected to a drought that came on, uh, the state implemented that uh, brush clearing program and we uh, went in with an excavator in about two and a half years, uh, cleared 3,800 acres of uh, mesquite, cedar, and uh, uh, if you understand prickly pear, mm-hmm. we just we, we just messed up the prickly pear with that excavator, but uh, it did uh, help uh, reduce the density of that. Now there might be some folks thinking, why would they take an excavator to that rangeland? They're 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 damaging that resource. But could you maybe describe to us that positive impact of reducing that mesquite? How much more water was in the ground, and uh, really how you know it, it costs money to take it out, probably. But uh, in the long run, you were you were saving money, you're maximizing that that resource and improving the rangeland too. Yes, uh, one of the uh, of the sponsors of, of our ESAP program is NRCS, and I'm uh, very much dedicated to what NRCS's programs would provide us. Uh, it, uh, in my case, uh, it, it helps me have a schedule to operate under and uh, a, a timeline to get the job done. Uh, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, in that uh, with an excavator we were making divots as if we were on a golf course and uh, that has its uh, drawbacks but it also we have found uh, when we've reseeded that country uh, it those divots held water for us and didn't get the runoff that we would have normally uh, had had we not had those divots mm-hmm. it uh, hinders working livestock on uh, with horses uh, well even with uh, any type of atvs it's not that easy but uh, our stock are not that wild so uh, we're we're not cowboys (laughs) (laughs) now john uh, uh turning to the great state of utah now when we look at 120 years in this environment, you know, when people think of Utah, they think of a very harsh and unforgiving environment. But for the people that settled it, that uh, that put the time in, that cultivated the land, it truly has uh, provided so much for the state and for the people of Utah. What, uh, and especially as you described, kind of being in a in more of a wetter, marshy area. What were some of those challenges that your family faced initially, and how has that carried on to generation to generation in making these land management decisions? Well, I can tell you that conservation, the concept of conservation in our family and our operation is synonymous with heritage. Everything we do is to carve out a prosperous way of life. It's not easy and it's taken time. I will tell you what qualifies me to talk about all of this and my family is because we know a lot of things that do not work. And we're (laughs) continually learning about some of those things that don't work, but at the same time, there is with the land and you have that affinity and, and I can talk about it until you're blue in the face, but there is something that is goes through you that when you connect yourself with the land, regardless of where that's at, that you have that affinity and that challenge and that love and that dialogue with the land that enables you to uh, 
experience what it's like to be a true conservationist. And so my family over the years has learned how to deal with the weather, the fact that in that area, um, in wetlands, that with water quality, with salt, a lot of our farm ground is tile drained. Mm -hmm. And so we experienced that the hard way when crops started, when salt started coming up, and, you yeah. know. And so you have all of those experiences, but at the same time, you there is a pathway to success. And we have discovered that in a very unusual way. As I mentioned to others last night at another meeting, that we, of all of the uh, recipients of this wonderful award, we are the odd duck. A lot of ranches, they deal with a shortage of water. We don't have a shortage of water. It's <laughs> everywhere. I don't have to worry about water lines and water systems and all that sort of thing. But I've got other challenges that are unique with ranching in wetlands. And, but we found a way to, to do that and to find a synergism, not only with our farming and ranching interests, but also with wildlife interests. Where we're located on the Great Salt Lake in the Bear River Delta, just north of there, we are part of the Pacific Flyway. And birds migrate from Canada down to Mexico and they come and pass over us by the millions. And all kinds of waterfowl and migratory birds and they need a place to stay. Mm -hmm. And the Great Salt Lake Basin is probably an oasis where they have to get a stop someplace. And so they, they stop there. And, and, and so we have this opportunity, not, I don't call it a problem, but an opportunity. I tell my people there at, at the ranch, the feedlot, that we never make mistakes, we just create opportunities for continued training. <laughs> and so we do all of those things, and we recognize the opportunities that are out there, and we've come up with a, an equation or a cadence that benefits all involved. Mm -hmm. Now, when you talk about the, the folks that you work with, with your family, let's talk about the business model because um, I think so many people, uh, consumers, folks that are removed from agriculture, they don't understand that this is a business. What, uh, what does the business model look like and how does sustainability and stewardship line up with, with the meetings, with the, with the structure of a business? When you talk about business and sustainability, the greatest resource on any farm or ranch has is the land. And so you have, you put a business enterprise on that land. We try to keep, keep separate the land from the, the businesses that are there. And so we have a farming enterprise. We have a ranching enterprise. We have a wildlife enterprise. And we have a feeding enterprise. And on the business model, uh, just to be, speak about it empirically, the farm needs to raise the commodities that the feedlot can use. The feedlot is an enterprise of margin. It takes something and adds value. It takes the feed that is uh, raised on the farm and adds value to it, processes it, and then it puts it in the feed bunk and then markets that feed through the cattle. The ranch has to provide cattle that will be prosperous, that will be a healthy type of cattle that will grow and provide the, the product that, that is successfully uh, marketed straight to the dinner plate. And so we, we have all of those. And then as far as the wildlife that's there, it's like my grandfather said, you will always cooperate with Mother Nature. The birds are going to be there regardless. And so see them not as a nuisance, but as an opportunity. And that's where the hunting comes in. Mm -hmm. I will tell you of all the enterprises, the hunting enterprise or the wildlife enterprise is by far the highest margin. It's all about <laughs> location. Yep. 
Yep. Typical. Mm-hmm. S- same line. Um, obviously, you mentioned uh, the efficiency of Hereford cattle in your business model. H- how did your business of ranching and land stewardship, how did that really tie together in your decision-making process? Of, and I like a model that you like is a pursuit of excellence. Yes. Uh, I alluded to the fact that uh, we came up on a drought in 2000, and uh, uh, John was speaking about uh, a learning experience. We had learned that uh, the genetics that we had chosen to start our initial herd with were not up to par, and uh, uh, the drought enabled us to uh, have a dispersal, and uh, during that dispersal uh, period where we didn't have any cattle or sheep, uh, we had the opportunity to clear the land of uh, the brush mm-hmm. and uh, reseeding it. And uh, the good fortune was uh, soon after reseeding the, the uh, land, we had uh, good rainfalls that particular year and we had an abundance of grass that uh, we couldn't overlook and so it uh, during that time gave us an opportunity to find good sources of genetics to get us back in uh, that was a, a real positive uh, operation that uh, we were able to do if i may i yes. would like to insert some things we we're talking about conservation and john was talking about the uh, the feel for the land, for the feeling that you have, and I think both of us grew up with that. My father uh, had come from a family of share, a sharecropper, so he was he felt that land was just the most important thing. And Carl's dad had become a rancher at, in his early 20s, having never been on a horse before. So. <laughs> But he, too, recognized the importance of our resource, our only resource in our case. So uh, they, too, used NRCS for different practices. So those, some of those practices had been, had been done on the ranch that we inherited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, from the very beginning, conservation was obviously important to us and we tried uh, we worked with NRCS in a lot of different ways rather than just clearing land and so on but fencing and water distribution which was needed so on so uh, and as a business model I would say that uh, neither <laughs> let me just say this I think we flew by the seat of our pants so to speak <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, I am—I'd I'd never wanted to be a bookkeeper, but I became something of that. And and together we would make decisions as to what genetics and this type of thing. But basically, our first concern were two things: cattle, cattle operation, and improvement of genetics. And the second thing was conservation, so we could improve those genetics and make those cattle more profitable and then along with that came the hunting and when we first started this clearing of the land um, people around us and several people said oh you've got you can't do that because your wildlife will not stay 
Well, it's, <laughs> it's proven to be really the opposite. We've been overrun for, for some time with, with wildlife, mainly deer. And so we went into a program that Carl could explain better, but with the Texas Parks and Wildlife, and in it, they, uh, whereby we harvest a certain number of does etc so that we're down now after five six years i guess or maybe longer uh, to the deer the ratio we want mm-hmm. and that's we feel and they're better animals uh and so we're we're very pleased with that and i would agree with john too that's a, one of the better enterprises for us <laughs> yeah you can john? i was gonna say i was just gonna interject one other thought that there is the art of agriculture and then there's the business of agriculture and the two blend together in more of a a, a bonding that they, they go hand in hand they have to and so from the business side knowing your cost of production unit cost per pound of calf you know numbers like conception rate uh, cost per ton uh, to produce say corn or wheat or alfalfa you know, you need to have control and know where your costs are, and then that empowers you to do some marketing, especially if you are raising the type of commodity, be it cattle or, or, or grains or out forages, that will give you predictability so that you can forecast where you want to be <laughs> and have the power to be there. Cattlefax used to have a saying that the cost of knowing is nothing compared to the cost of not knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And uh, going off of that, just, you know, having careers and whatnot, and especially focusing on genetics and animal husbandry. Now, Carl, you you spent quite some time also in the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps as well before coming back. That's correct. So yes. what, uh, what, what was that like, and what, uh, what were some of those key takeaways that you went from the Veterinary Corps and coming back to livestock production? Uh, I can't help but mentioned uh, Pat and I are marrying while I was at uh, Texas A&M and uh, in the School of Agriculture thinking that and I'm the class of 53 originally and uh, thinking I was going to be going back to the uh, ranch. Uh, the drought again uh, caused that to uh, those plans to change. Uh, Pat and I had married if you don't uh, remember back at those years in the 50s, Texas A&M, uh, I don't think they had discovered women. At least they didn't permit them to uh, enroll. Okay. And unfortunately, Pat couldn't continue her college education there. But uh, I wouldn't uh, change a thing. Uh, I, <laughs> I got Pat. <laughs> she was gracious enough to, to come and join us. Uh, Applied to veterinary school, went into veterinary uh, medicine upon graduation. Another thing about Texas A&M at that time, the core was mandatory. Mandatory meaning that you were going to serve a minimum of two years upon graduation, regardless of what your degree program mm-hmm. was. While I was in veterinary school, I had already graduated with the AH degree, and uh, upon that graduation, I was promoted to a first uh, second lieutenant uh, unbeknownst to me the four years I was in veterinary school those four years were going toward pay grade uh, increases 
So upon graduating, I had my two years obligation, uh, went on active duty thinking that we would get out after two years and go back to ranch or go into the ranching because that was really our first love. Mm -hmm. uh, we had good fortune. Uh, I should divert and say I did get orders for Korea and that was going to mean a year of separation. Was not inviting at that time to go in. So I thought, well, okay, I'll get out. And I had already uh, made it known that if, if I could, I'd like to go to Alaska. Uh, unfortunately, the man that I replaced in Alaska came down with hepatitis and had to be evacuated and uh, made that opening available to us. So therein lies where we began to stay. We had two children at the time. A third one was added in uh, while we were stationed in Alaska. And uh, military life has been not only good to us as a uh, family, but as to our children. It's mm -hmm. a, we found it a good way to learn. You do a lot of moving, but you broaden your uh, outlook on life, which I think is a, a positive aspect of it. Veterinary medicine, I should inject, uh, is not uh, what you think, what the normal person thinks of as veterinary medicine is uh, the military is really not made out for it unless you want to go into veterinary research. Uh, our, uh, the core, total core of officers numbers about 400, and half of that is in research, and mm -hmm. I was not research-oriented. I was in public health, uh, and, and in public health is where uh, we worked with the uh, uh, public health conditions on any of the military bases as an example dining facilities of course all the food that's going in there is, is going through our uh, program with veterinary medicine mm -hmm. it's not animal oriented uh, our only uh, in, in uh, 26 years in the military our only association with military animals was the, the uh, mascots at West Point okay. and uh, those are <laughs> mules and <laughs> they're not something you would often think of as uh, animal that would be in uh, agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. Not now, anyway. Right. Well, obviously drought has had an impact on every farm ranch, but mm -hmm. truly shaped the direction of career and uh, shape, reshaping your herd when you did come back to the ranch. So how how do you hedge how how did you look at uh, ranching and drought resilience and conservation differently mm. since your life was impacted by drought so much i would say one of the things that i that we've we learned was that in having a seed stock operation you don't just call your herd as much as you don't have the real opportunity to just sell off your lower end as an example because uh, in other words you can't move as quickly now we have uh, the young man who is now leasing our ranch has a cow-calf operation and he is has uh, been buying older cow bred older cows and calving them out and so if if he uh, comes into a drought situation then he can easily move his older cows and not be at such a loss as we would have been mm -hmm. so uh, that's something that uh, 
uh, that I think he definitely has an advantage on in that respect. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, it, we've recognized that we had to do something because we have no cultivated ground at all. Mm -hmm. So we had to do something. And as it turned out, uh, again, in so many ways, uh, things our decisions are made for us that we may not think are best but work out better in the yeah. long run so as it did so yeah. now john i i'm I just going to add to that yes i'm just going <laughs> to add to that in, in our operation uh we're diversified enough not only with our enterprises and stuff but also geographically because we have a good portion of our ranch is also drought sensitive and a lot of times as a ranch manager or a farm manager, you need to realize where are my vulnerabilities given the constant of we have no control over the weather. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between constants and variables. Variables you can manage, constants you cannot. The weather is one, gestation length is another one you cannot, uh, you cannot manipulate, it is what it is, and, but you can work around them and recognize where are my risks. And so we identified uh, those ranges that are vulnerable to, uh, to drought and, and, and the rainy cycles as far as there's certain times of the year where it does not rain and you need to watch your grass curve. I always tell my cowboys, I say a, a buckaroo will go out and look at the cattle and maybe look at the grass. A rancher will go look at the grass and monitor the progress of his cattle through what the range looks like, what the grass looks like. Mm -hmm. And we have to do the same thing. There are certain times of the year that you do not want to graze because of the water situation, because of the rainy season versus the dry season, so on and so forth. And so by doing that, being diverse enough that when it is a drought time, that means also that the wetlands will dry up a little bit more and I have more access to some of the forage because of, of, of the drought which takes pressure off of the drylands. Vice versa, during a rainy time or a stormy time, I've got the drylands that will shield me from vulnerability to excess snow or, or rain. And so we're, we're fortunate to be diverse enough that I can, you know, I can be one or the other or have a combination uh, uh, through the year that, that I can have uh, where the grass is, that's where the cattle will be. You know, so I think sometimes you may have an operation where it's a multi-generational ranch and maybe uh, one of the kids comes back, but they don't have an agriculture degree. And, I, and I've had friends uh, talk to me about this where they feel like like they're they're kind of uh, they go to they go to the stock grower meetings, they go to these things, but they just lack a little bit of knowledge because maybe they have an engineering degree. And, and they didn't take the, that natural resources 101 class where we all learn plant ID and take our soil classes. And, and they're intimidated when they sit down with folks like you or, or, or whatnot. And, and what is your, what's your bit of advice on, on maybe some other courses that people can take where, where they should not feel embarrassed to, to go and, and, and gain this knowledge that maybe they, they didn't have the opportunity to learn in college or, or, or along the way. What, what's, your, what's your advice to them about not feeling that they're too vulnerable not to learn it? It's that we're grass growers and we take care of our natural resources. What, what's your advice? A couple of things that I tell, and I'm an adjunct professor at the university there close by, and I tell the kids, if I can call them that, <laughs> that education is a process it's not an event just because you get a degree does not dictate that you're smart 
I'm always learning. And it's the same way if you graduate and you have a business degree. I, mean, I have a brother that's got an MBA. And I have, my son has a degree in finance. And, but at the same time, they come to the ranch. And yeah, it's true, if you can't produce it, how are you going to manage it? And so you need to know the biological side or have an appreciation. And so the learning curves are out there. And so there's always opportunity to learn. No such thing as a dumb question. There mm -hmm. may be some smart answers to those questions, but still at the same time, there's an opportunity of continually in being involved in the process, the process of education. Carl, were you going to jump in there? I, I couldn't, I, when I asked that question, <laughs> did you just have something you wanted to add? Well, I thought you were really on a subject that is very applicable to our situation. Our three children are all architects, and uh, it's been a hard learning curve for me to realize that just because they're architects, they couldn't go back into ranch or come back into ranching. Uh, I was awakened to the fact that uh, of the three children, two of them were in Rhode Island, or one of them was in Rhode Island, the other one was in New York, and it's hard to learn Texas agriculture uh, in those states uh, even if I wanted them to or if they wanted to. So I finally, uh, being a, a German extraction, a hard-headed, I finally <laughs> learned my uh, situation that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, however, uh, I've mentioned that one of the disappointments to me was what were we going to do at the ranch? as we are approaching the age of retirement. And uh, uh, I've learned there that uh, you don't have many people wanting to lease land in our situation that are young. Mm -hmm. It's uh, difficult to get the young people in our area to want to come back to ranching. However, uh, we were very fortunate in a young couple, I think the parents described this young man, Carson Womack, as, uh, what is it, he's uh, in his 20s, but he thinks and, and uh, operates like he's in his 80s. He's always been an old person and ranching is what he wanted to do, just couldn't afford it. They had to lease the yeah. land to get into it. We were fortunate to find that uh, person upon graduating from the university. He happened to go into the TCU uh, ranch management course and uh, found it to be very profitable. At least that's my impression that it was very profitable to him. And uh, married a young lady. She too is a, what we would refer to as a military brat. Her, her father and parents were in the Marine Corps, uh, aviation, but her love is in uh, agriculture. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, from experience, uh, speaking for Pat and my uh, situation, our love was in agriculture, and I feel that that is a good niche for that particular couple to have the operation uh, uh, that we were able to lease to. Now, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they own the cattle that, that are on the ranch now, and... Uh are, are they? Are you setting this up where they're going to be able to buy buy in from you and your family, or is this just going to be a lease for them? If I may ask that, I appreciate your asking. You're the first one to ask the question, and I'll go ahead and divulge the fact 
realizing this may go out over the air, but I think we're going to have an answer to this before uh, it may get out on the air, is uh, we have offered this couple the opportunity, in fact, just got a word uh, yesterday from the appraiser that we're waiting for his appraisal on the ranch value to give them a figure that mm-hmm. uh, they can uh, go to their lending institution. Uh, so, uh, in answer to that, uh, answer to prayer would be that they're able to uh, float a loan and, and buy it because we really don't want to put it on the market. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I would definitely say that uh, we are hopeful that mm-hmm. they can because thereby comes this sustainability issue again. We've put a lot of work, time, and money into conservation and growing grass. We have grass now that I don't know what to do with. But uh, so we want to see a young person get in and be successful because so many places now are in this generational situation where people are not coming back. So, well, and uh, what is? It's difficult to have a planning process too. This is your life's work. You've put so much into it. What has been the family discussion in this uh, in, in this phase of of the transition of uh, you know opportunity oh. to sell to young? What what is your what have your children's involvement been? What what has their input been? Because. Where I'm from in Montana, sometimes there's conservation groups that'll come in and just buy a ranch for top right, dollar, right. and it's never, never going to be, be ranched. It's mm-hmm, just turned into mm-hmm. they, they don't even let anything graze on it. <laughs> Nothing will graze on it because it's <laughs> because, there's old yeah. grass and it just burns. Uh-huh. Um, if you're comfortable talking about that, could you yeah. share maybe that aspect of keeping things sustainable, but also having that family input? I'd be happy to because I'm so grateful. Uh, that when we first started the partnership, which was in 1980, they were the youngest one was still in college, and we talked about it, went out to the ranch and looked at everything and talked about what we were thinking about doing and what we needed to do and so on, and they said at that time, uh, their input was, it's your retirement, Dad and we don't know anything about it. We can't come back and do anything. So you you and mom do what you want to. Build a house where you want, do whatever you want, and we're, we'll just, we're part of it, but we'll go along with it. So, so uh, anyway, they, uh, and they have done that for all these years. They, and then we, because of a glitch in changes of addresses we had to redo the partnership and rename it and so on so then we started having regular meetings and I'll have to say zoom is a wonderful thing (laughs) it's come about with our bunch but it is uh, I, I have to hand it to them they have had I think enough love and respect for us that they are willing to do and work together they have so far and right now one does the bookkeeping stuff one does the leasing and all that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and you know that's it's divided up and they're it's it's most gratifying as a parent to see that too you know so well that's great to hear Mm -hmm. and uh, just just a couple of uh, 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 to comment on the coattails of what we've been discussed here 
couple things. First of all, you wonder about bringing somebody on that maybe doesn't really understand the, the art and the science of, of ranching mm -hmm. and farming. Mm -hmm. I learned a long time ago that uh, an education, hopefully, if it's a true education, will teach you not what to think, but how to think. Mm -hmm. And regardless of your background, if you know how to think, then you will adapt quickly. I'd much rather teach somebody what I know and if they know how to think versus somebody who only knows what to think and then you have to break some bad habits. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. In our situation, so very grateful that, I mean, I, I'm going into somewhat of what, what uh, we've been talking about here in my own life. I'm so very grateful that I have a son who decided to come back. He had a corporate uh, office, corner office on the 13th floor, downtown Salt Lake, but was not happy. And he wanted to do something different. He wanted to come back to the land that he grew up on. And so, and, and that's what he's done. And so we have that opportunity. I, I do, we have in our family, we have a heritage, what I call fierce loyalty. My great grandfather had a son and two daughters and they kept the ranch and they were they were loyal to each other in the same way with my father and his sisters and now with us and so we've been able to keep and we have not since we put the, the ranch together back 120 years ago the only thing we have sold over that 120 years is a couple of gravel pits and in fact we have grown from there and so as far as you know from one generation to the next splitting the ranch up going in separate ways and all that sort of thing that has not been an issue because of the loyalty to the heritage that is out there and you want part of that heritage and that legacy you want it to continue mm -hmm. you want it to continue in the same degree and so all the time i'm thinking as i'm out on our place what would my grandfather say if he were here today do the fences are they in in, in check are the ditches clean are the cattle thrifty? Is the grass growing? How are the crops? Mm -hmm. And in my mind's eye and in my heart, I have to answer to him every day. Yep. I have to answer to my dad every day. Because when you're out on the ranch, when a family deal, it's more than just say he's the boss or he's your, he's your relative. And sometimes you gotta be careful. I know with my, my children and grandchildren, when they're with me on the ranch, I'm not dad, I'm not grandpa. I'm the boss. Yeah. And there's a difference and a difference tone and you, you learn that and you respect that as you, as you grow up. I mean, it's, it's a different kind of relationship. What, uh, what would you say to encourage your neighbors that are doing similar practices or maybe it's another family member or just uh, encouraging someone to nominate someone else or themselves for an award like this just to highlight what they're doing, getting their story. What, what you all are doing right now is getting your story out there to the public. As we look at sustainability, consumers want to know more about it. And uh, when, when consumers want to know more about it, that means we need to do a good job of sharing what we're doing so we're not over-regulated, so people understand what we're doing. What, what's your bit of information to your neighbors to say, you know what, you're doing a good job. I think you need this recognition. I will be the first to say that this program provides an excellent forum to get out the word that the true conservationists who practice conservation every day, and they do it with a passion, are farmers and ranchers. And we're not getting that message out. And consequently, in that vacuum, you have those who come in who want to regulate. 
and then you have those groups who really don't understand true conservation and the resources that are out there, and th and they don't they and so all of a sudden we're all in, confined to these silos, where ranching and grazing is in one silo, and then wildlife is in another silo, and water quality is another silo, and say housing and development is in another silo, and and when you have all of that, everybody loses, and this this program is an excellent forum to reach out to all of those other silos and say let's listen to one another because we have as, as, as uh, Kennedy said a long time ago the bottom line or the sum total of everything we all breathe the same air drink the same water we all live on this planet and so let's figure out a way how we can live together synergistically and so this program that's what this is all about and so we get the word out we have a saying out in our community, if you want to know what kind of a rancher you are or farmer you are, just, you know, go ask your neighbor <laughs> because they see what's going on. They know who's got the better crops or this or that or whatever the case may be. And sometimes that is said in a negative vein, but also in a positive vein. And so if you've got somebody who you think, hey, they can tell our story. And so, you, you know, you nominate them. Yep. Yep. Because we need mm -hmm. we need missionaries of conservation to go out and proclaim this message that what we're doing is we're the true conservationists 24/7, 365. I think that should be. Th I, I love that one. Missionaries <laughs> of conservation. That uh, that just parallels so well. Uh, Carl Pat, uh, well, what are your thoughts on that? Of encouraging folks to tell their story, even if it isn't going exactly through this process but what, what why folks should consider looking at these opportunities of showcasing conservation and stewardship what has come to mind and we've been reminded just the short time we've been here at this convention uh, to be thinking about who would you nominate and unfortunately the person that is equally deserving more deserving than us to even be having been recognized has passed away in the last two years, both he and his wife. Uh, I, I feel badly I didn't uh, know anything about this program, the, the ESAP program <clears throat> at the time, but I feel badly that he has put so much into it and then didn't have the recognition that I feel he well deserved. Well, I think that uh, this has uh, also taken us by surprise because we we did not know we were nominated until we won the first award from the local organization. So they had gone to our children to get the information. So uh, I'm, I feel kind of behind in the game in that respect. But I too had been thinking about this uh, since this being down here as to, and so I think we need to think or look around us a little more closely as to what we could do now to nominate, find somebody. And uh, one of the things that you're talking about in getting, getting messages out as to what farmers and ranchers do, uh, we found that when people came to the ranch and saw activities that it meant everything was different. They looked at things differently. Uh, we had a group from the Air Force Base that came out, brought their children, and we did, we tattooed a calf and palpated <laughs> a cow and, you know, showed them the bulls and explained the situation. And the, they really, it was so interesting to me to see how these people who 
were ready to look and learn they how much they enjoyed it and mm-hmm. the questions that they came up with and so on so uh, that is to me is another one of the things that I was taught that um, you know those to those of us who have been given so much much is required to be given yep. and that's our point that's our place now to do that so well again uh Thank, uh, th- thank you all for, for coming and sharing more of your story. And I, I would encourage all of our listeners out there uh, to also check out environmentalstewardship.org. And that's where you will find the videos. Uh, Brian Baxter and his crew, of course, they produce Cattlemen to Cattlemen, but they go out and produce the environmental stewardship uh, videos. They go out in the country. They give you that bird's eye drone view. They, they're on the ground. They know how to, how to, how to share that image of a, of a working landscape. So uh, go check out those videos of all seven of our regional winners um, and, uh, and past uh, winners and, and regional uh, participants as well because you might learn something and it might, it might spark some interest or if you're not involved in livestock, the livestock industry, it might uh, open your mind to new information and knowledge about what we do out in the countryside. So environmentalstewardship.org and I will mention, of course, the uh, announcement for the national winner for this class of the ESAP will take place at the summer business meeting in July, the end of July in Reno, Nevada. And uh, we'll be seeing all of our friends there that we spoke with on the last two podcasts. And uh, really, we're, it, it's tough just to narrow it down to one national winner. And uh, that, just, uh, just hearing all these as a young person, it's inspiring me to, to hear that. And also, congratulations on 70 years. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and thank you very much for the opportunity to tell our story. Yep. Thank you all. Thank you to John and, of course, Carl and Pat for being with us. And as I mentioned, check out those videos at environmentalstewardship.org. And, again, thank you to Corteva, NRCS, USDA, McDonald's, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for their continued support of a great program that highlights what we do in rural America. I'm Lane Northland for the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.